Welcome to Indie Film Weekly, a No Film School podcast. I'm Liz Nord. I'm Joan Fusco. It's December 14th, 2017, and on this week's show, Louis C.K.'s distribution saga, Netflix reveals a surprising list of the year's most devoured shows, tips on being your own script doctor, and as always, news you can use about new gear, upcoming deadlines, indie film releases, and Ask No Film School. Hi, everybody. Welcome to this week's show, coming at you from downtown Brooklyn, New York, home of No Film School. As always, we're here to bring you everything you might have missed while you were busy making films. First of all, happy Hanukkah to all of our friends lighting candles this week. And I want to start off with a special No Film School announcement. It was exactly two years ago today that No Film School founder Ryan Koo reached out to me to talk about taking on the editor-in-chief role. And I was so flattered that he would consider handing over his baby to me. So it's been a great ride so far, and I'm thankful to all of you for being such an active and supportive film community. Now, two years later, I'm excited to welcome the newest member to the No Film School team, our new managing editor, Eric Lures, who's here to say hi. Hi, everyone. Thank you. Uh, thank you for having me, and I'm excited to be joining the team. If Ryan handed you the baby, hopefully we can share custody or <laughs> have have you know another child a, a part of it. But very excited to be here. Um, I had to pay Emily off to uh, to get the position, but very excited uh, <laughs> to be a part of it. I think she was happy for the extra cash. And now that the baby's like a toddler, I definitely need the extra hands. So I think uh, we're good. Very true. Um, where did you come to us from? So previously, I was working uh, for a nonprofit organization known as IFP, which is an independent filmmaker project. Uh, they are based at the uh, Made in New York Media Center in Dumbo in Brooklyn, not too far from here. Uh, and they've been around for about 40 years uh, doing, you may have heard of many of their yearly uh, programs. Such yeah, as, we've talked about them on the show. Yeah, and you guys have covered IFP Week, uh, the Gotham Awards, the IFP Labs, and things like that. Uh, I worked as the membership and public programming manager, so all kind of uh, screenings, workshops, classes, events, Q&As, and things of that nature. Uh, I helped to put together for about three and a half years. Um, so it's been, you know, it's been a good journey so far, and it's kind of... Uh, nice to have the the Brooklyn film scene expanding in many different ways. Yeah, for sure. And we're so excited that that, um, they were kind enough to send you our way. Oh, I haven't told them yet. (laughs) (laughs) They're going to find out on the podcast. (laughs) I'm sure they all listen. Yes. Um, So we're going to let you get back to your desk, your new desk soon. But one thing is um, our listeners know that every year we do our kind of like wrap up of the the year in review and the best film. So to get to know you a little bit, I'm going to ask for a sneak preview of what was your favorite indie film of 2017. Okay, so uh, this was always, it's always a very hard thing to do, which is a great problem to have. Uh, there were many, I will tend to skew maybe a little bit more towards documentary nonfiction work. Uh, there are some great ones that'll be on maybe some lists that we're going to be putting out, um, such as uh, Jordan Peele's Get Out, Theo Anthony's Rat Film, uh, Lady Bird's another great one. But I would say for me, uh, and this kind of ties into IFP in a way, uh, would be Yancey Ford's Strong Island. Uh, his documentary that premiered at Sundance earlier this year, and I believe was a shortlisted uh, for the Best Documentary Academy Award. Um, that's a film where uh, we actually screened it as a member screening for IFP back in September. And typically I don't like to do this, but 
I was moderating a Q&A that night, so I watched the film earlier that day. And because uh, Yancey's film is about the death of his brother in uh, Strong Island and the really botched um, case that kind of went along with it and the injustice that that followed, um, I watched the film a few hours earlier. It was so emotionally taken by it and is so profound and des- you know desperately so confrontational and necessarily so um, that by the time I actually got to meet Yancey later that night, uh, I had so many questions and it was almost more of a gushing uh, experience because I became such a fan of it. And um, Strong Island is on Netflix now, so it definitely has the uh, audience that's out there for it. And I really, really encourage you to check that one out. Awesome. Well, again, we're so excited to have you here. And you all, listeners, I'm sure we'll be hearing more from Eric soon. All right. So moving into headlines, what do you got for us, John? Well, our first story this week is about Louis C.K. I know this is a bummer to keep hearing about these sexual misconduct allegations from someone that was so well-respected by many people, both genders, uh, female comedians and males alike. But we got more to talk about with him. About a month after its scheduled theatrical release, his new film, I Love You, Daddy, can finally be seen by the public. However, it's definitely not being screened the way CK would have hoped. For anyone who's been living under a rock, The Orchard decided to go ahead and not release the film the day after a much-publicized article popped up in the New York Times detailing five women's accusation of the comedian of masturbating in front of them, among other acts of sexual misconduct. CK then confirmed the stories were true and that he was remorseful for his actions, but it clearly wasn't enough for The Orchard to want to continue any sort of relationship with him. There was already some controversy about the film prior to the Times article due to several jokes about child rape and the use of racial slurs by CK's character. Not to mention, the plot was about a teenager's relationship with an older industry executive. Not the greatest timing for that one. About a week ago, CK agreed to buy back the film, which The Orchard bought for $5 million at the Toronto International Film Festival, and to pay back any money received as well as any marketing costs incurred by The Orchard. Now, back to the most recent development, which is that the film has leaked in its entirety and can be found on various pirating sites across the web. The piracy group Hive CMB, which made headlines in 2015 when it dumped dozens of Oscar-contending films on torrent sites from press screener DVDs before their release, claimed responsibility for the leak. Quote, We decided to let this one title go out this month since it never made it to the cinema, and nobody knows if it ever really will go to retail at all, the group wrote in the file notes. Either way, there is no perfect time to release it anyway, but we think it would be a waste to let a great Louis C.K. go unwatched, and nobody can even see or buy it. The rap speculates the source of the leak comes from The Orchard's premature release of some award screeners of the film. I feel like premature release is a poor choice of words for this story, just saying. Yeah, maybe. But I think I'm probably going to end up watching it after this whole controversy. I mean... Now there's just so much hype around it, let alone the fact that I used to respect Louis C.K. that, you know, maybe uh, I think I'll watch it. What about you? I mean, to watch it for free and know that he won't get, you know, profits from it, I feel okay about that, whereas I maybe not normally feeling okay about piracy. But I also, I got to say, I mean, I respect him for buying it back. Like, I think he did the right thing, even if it was sort of in his own self-interest to get the film out there. Like, The Orchard spent all this money, and then because of his actions, they weren't going to be able to release the film. So I think buying it back was kind of the right thing to do. Yeah, and it's also nice to know that anyone who was involved will actually, like, get to see the product of it. And hopefully 
they'll at least get some benefits from having it be released. Um, I know I had a friend who uh, is in it, and you know it was kind of her breakthrough. So I'm hoping that she gets some recognition from it. That isn't bad, and uh, yeah, I'm gonna check it out. So we've got a bunch of award updates because tis the season. But there are actually some fun facts and unusual side notes this year, so I'll get into it. First, the Golden Globe nominations were announced, which are the shiny prizes handed out by the Hollywood Foreign Press Association. This year's Globe's fun fact has to do with Ridley Scott's All the Money in the World. You might remember that Kevin Spacey was set to play oil tycoon J. Paul Getty in the film. And then, (laughs) this is starting to sound familiar... After multiple sexual misconduct allegations came out against Spacey, so to speak, Ridley Scott replaced him with Christopher Plummer, who was apparently the director's first choice for the part the whole time. So the reshoots happened with Plummer only weeks before the movie's holiday release date and just in time to be screened as a work in progress before the Hollywood Foreign Press Association's voting deadline. So this was reportedly an awards show first, and the gamble paid off. Just four weeks after filming his part, Plummer received a Golden Globe nomination for Supporting Actor, and Scott got one for Best Director. So the film is set for release on Christmas, and we can all see what the hype's about. Now, in a less fun fact, apparently foreign critics haven't quite caught the drift of what's happening here in the U.S. because no female directors were nominated this year, and other industry minorities were also pretty much shut out. Especially shocking in such a big year for directors like Greta Gerwig, Jordan Peele, Sofia Coppola, Dee Reese, Patty Jenkins. It's not a new position for the Globes. Like, only five women have ever been nominated for the Golden Globe for Best Director in its 75-year history, and only one woman has won, which surprised me. Actually, it was Barbara Streisand for Yentl in 1984. Happy Hanukkah, Babs. Um, If you were wondering, the Best Director nods this year, which were, of course... All men went to the aforementioned Ridley Scott, as well as Guillermo del Toro for The Shape of Water, Martin McDonough for Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, Christopher Nolan for Dunkirk, and Steven Spielberg for The Post. Now, that's not to say that women and the larger conversation around sexual harassment were shut out of the proceedings. CAA, one of the largest and most influential talent agencies, which was named in a New York Times story about Harvey Weinstein's complicity machine, announced that it will cancel its pre-Golden Globes party, instead using the money to establish a legal fund to combat sexual harassment. The company has also joined the 50-50 by 2020 pledge, which commits to achieving gender parity in company leadership in three years' time. Not to be outshined, get it, shiny awards? Ah. The Academy Board has approved a standards of conduct statement of values for its members, which was based on the work that it did with a task force, including Ivy League ethics professors and other experts from outside the film industry. In a letter to members from Academy CEO Don Hudson, she said that the standards of conduct is just the first step and that the task force will be working to, quote, finalize procedures for handling allegations of misconduct, assuring that we can address them fairly and expeditiously. So good on you, Academy, for taking action in this department. It's the kind of thing we've been talking about on this show, like, Okay, what real steps can be taken? And it seems like they're they're doing more than just talking about it. A couple other award presentations worth a mention this week. The 33rd annual IDA Documentary Awards were handed out last Saturday. Top honors went to Dan Sickles and Antonio Santini's Sundance Jury-winning love story Dina for Best Feature, and a film called Edith and Eddie by my friend and fellow film fatal Laura Checkaway won for Best Short. Edith and Eddie was also shortlisted for the Oscars last week. Woohoo! Proud of you, girl. 
Worth noting from the evening is the Courage Under Fire Award, which was presented by Catherine Bigelow to a, quote, filmmaker who demonstrates extraordinary courage in pursuit of the truth, end quote. For the first time, this award was presented to a group of filmmakers who all made projects about the insane serious situation, and I recommend you buckle up and watch all of these excellent pieces of work. They were Cries from Syria, Hell on Earth, The Fall of Syria and the Rise of ISIS, and Oscar shortlisted City of Ghosts and Last Man in Aleppo. We have interviews with a couple of those directors, so I'll link to those in the podcast post. Finally, in awards news, the most prestigious trophies in Europe were handed out at the appropriately named European Film Awards. And they were all handed to pretty much one film, Ruben Ostlund's art world satire, The Square, which won Best Film, Best Director, Best Actor, Best Screenwriter, and Best Comedy, too. John did a great podcast with Ostlund a couple months ago, and we will also link to that in the podcast post. I think The Square is one of the most underrated movies in America right now. I don't understand why it hasn't gotten more recognition here, but I'm glad to see it get some deserved recognition in Europe, where it's from. So I mean, it's it's going to be uh, the Foreign Academy Award uh, nominee, and it was on a bunch of those critics' best lists. I think it's you know. It's I not mean, like it's going unrecognized you here. Don't, you don't hear it in the same conversation as Three Billboards, The Shape of Water, Florida Project, yeah. Lady Bird. It does Bird, seem like a very European film. Yeah, there's American actors in it too, though. I mean, Elizabeth, well, there's English actors in it. Elizabeth Moth is in it and Dominic West is in it. It is Ruben Oslin's first film uh, that isn't entirely shot like with, I think he's, I think he's Swedish. Um, so Swedish actors. Is he Swedish? But I mean the sort of content of it. I, I still haven't seen it, so I'm really excited. But with everything you've said, like it's a little bit esoteric. It's about the art world. It's like it doesn't feel like an American I think the crowd art, pleaser. The art world exists in America, I think. Yeah, it's just different. Like the whole art culture and appreciation of art is sort of less here. Well, it still deserves to be appreciated, I think. Yeah, for sure. I can't wait to see it. All right. And now moving on to our next piece of news. A few weeks ago, we talked about how Nielsen had finally come up with a way to create ratings for the notoriously tight-lipped Netflix, but that the results still seemed flawed at best. We haven't heard anything more from Nielsen on the subject. Netflix, however, released their own ratings list earlier this week, and I say ratings in quotes. Pretty much, they just shared their most-watched shows of 2017. So it's more like rankings than ratings, I guess. Mm -hmm. No numbers. But they did release some numbers. So first off, they state that users around the world watched more than 140 million hours of Netflix per day in 2017, which is just an insanely high figure. Oh, I wish I could do that whistle. Phew! It's nuts. I mean, think about its competitors, and it's, it seems like it just blows everything out of the water. So if you multiply that by 365, we can assume that 51 billion hours of content were consumed over the course of the entire year. Now, Netflix didn't give out the exact figures. Rather, they split their most watched content into two categories, shows we devoured and shows we savored. Series viewed more than two hours per day were considered devoured, while those viewed less than two hours a day were categorized as savored. So, without further ado, the shows we devoured in 2017. Number one, American Vandal. Number two, 3%, which is a Mexican uh, show, I believe. So, big international draw. 13 Reasons Why was number three. Anne with an E was number four. Riverdale was number five. Number six was Ingo Bernabale, which is probably not how you actually say it. Uh, it's a Brazilian show. 
again. So you see that some international titles are appearing in these num- in this top 10 list. Travelers is number seven. The Keepers is number eight. The OA came in at number nine. And number 10 was the Confession Tapes. So the shows we savored, which again are the ones that we tend to binge at a longer pace, were number one, The Crown, number two, Big Mouth, number three, Neo Yokio, number four, A Series of Unfortunate Events, number five, Glow, number six, Friends from College, number seven, Ozark, number eight, Atypical, number nine, Dear White People, and number 10, Disjointed, all of which I'm pretty sure are Netflix shows. So this original content thing seems to be working out for them. What was your most devoured show, Liz, in 2017? Did you watch any shows? That's a good question. I actually looking at this list, I thought I was like kind of on top of things because, you know, it's our job. Um, But I hardly watched any of those devoured shows except for the OA. I don't even know most of them. I watched several of the savored ones. But I think my most devoured that was a Netflix original. This is like a guilty pleasure confession because I kind of can't even believe it myself. But did, did you ever see any of the episodes of Frontier? No, I never heard of it. Yeah, it's it's a Netflix original and the lead is Jason Momoa who like is who plays Khal Drogo on Game of Thrones. He's like really hot if you're into that kind of, you know, man beast thing. And um it's the show about the frontier, like the American frontier and fur traders and and uh you know, fights with Native Americans. It's kind of like a historical drama, but like very very bloody. And I watched one episode and was like, that was all right. I'll watch another. And then like couldn't stop and watched all whatever, six, and then was really disappointed that there weren't more. Oh, man. Like well, I was up until four in the morning. This reveals something about you. And I will say that my most of our show might also be a guilty pleasure and reveal something about me. And that is I watched like... 22 seasons of Cheers and Frasier. <laughs> oh my god! This year, I uh, didn't even know those were on there. Yeah, they're on there, and they're just talk about bingeable. They're wow, there because they're such little nuggets. I mean, I would just like put them on and fall asleep. Right. So it's really easy to just put them on and like keep doing whatever you want to be doing. I feel like if anyone like the you know guys you guys who listen to this show might guess that it would have been the other way around like I'd be the one watching Frasier and John would be the one watching Frontier. I don't know. I don't know if I would come off as a Frontier guy though still. Maybe. But you like like the bloody stuff and historical stuff? Yeah, that's true. But uh Cheers and Frasier. That is too funny. Well, so what does Frontier say about me? You said it's, it reveals I mean, something. You're about watching me. it for the hot Jason Momoa, and th- that's I mean, that should shock <laughs> basically no one. <laughs> yeah, so there you go. Reviewing. Yeah, no, it did surprise me though, because like I'm not always into that type of thing, but yeah, it was like really. They are they are following. I think Netflix is following the HBO model of these like historic reenactment shows that really have very little to do with the history and almost everything to do with like blood and sexy stuff. So, interesting. And now here's Charles Hain with this week's gear news. Thank you, John. So, after, way back in June, at the Worldwide Developer Conference, showing us that they're going to make an iMac Pro and promising us that it will ship in 2017, Apple waited until December 12th to tell us exactly when in 2017 it's going to ship. And it's going to ship today, Thursday, December 14th, which technically is in 2017. So, 
they kept their promise. But man, they could have told us like a month ago. A few folks already have their hands on them, and so far the reports are glowing, with some processes doubling or even tripling in speed. This is going to be a huge benefit for filmmakers who often spend hours of their lives waiting on renders. And yes, it's expensive. It starts at $5,000. It's exciting that they're making these. It's going to be really exciting for professional filmmakers who, you know, your time is money. And if you can cut your render times in a third, the money you save might be worth the extra money you spend to get it. Um, And we're excited to see them out in the wild, especially when we're freelancing and other people have had to buy them. But our lives of freelancers are easier. So uh, those are out today. Um, So $5,000 is a lot. (laughs) But somebody did a breakdown where they compared it to like, if you wanted to build this individually from the specs, it is about $5,000 worth of computer. It's eight cores, a whole lot of RAM, SSDs, super powerful graphics cards. It is a lot of video horsepower all rolled into one unit. So like it's no it's not that it's just an Apple computer. I mean, I think for a long time now the Apple premium once you take into account like the software that comes with it is not always as high as we think. And like if you do a spec for spec like oh, I want to buy a graphics card off the shelf with 8 gigabytes of RAM. I want to buy this much RAM off the shelf. I want to buy these processors. You're not paying a huge price bump for the iMac Pro. It's just that they're wrapping all the most powerful shit into one box, and then they figured out some way to keep that box cool even when it's tiny. Mm. So, yeah, in a year, could you put together a cheaper uh, competitor? Probably, but, like, as things stand right now, I think it's a fair price for the amount of power you get. Awesome. Cool. So, up next, Flanders Scientific has given themselves an extra 10 inches with their new 4K Ultra HD HDR monitor, the XM. Uh, It used to be the XM550. And now that it's 65 inches, it's the XM650 because the 650 is for 65. This is not really a surprise because the main competitors for the XM are monitors like the OLEDs from LG and the EZ1000, which is only available in 65 inches from Panasonic. And, well, you don't want to be in a situation where there's anything your competitor is doing better than you. You never want to hear like, ah, oh, well, you've got all the features I want, but the EZ-1000 is bigger, so I got the bigger one. If you can make it the same size, you might as well. And considering the fact that the it's an OLED, like the EZ-1000 and the LGs, we can reasonably assume these are all coming out of the same factory and it's just different hardware built on top of it because not that many people make panels. So the popularity of the 65-inch models from LG probably brought the price down enough to make it a reasonable, sane decision for Flanders. On top of that, they've also cut $2,000 off the price. So instead of being $1,495, it's now $1,295. And this is going to make me sound like an infomercial host. If you buy now, you get $1,000 off. I wonder if that's always – I wonder if that will just become the permanent price, $1,195. But for now, it is being – touted as a launch price. So if it's the same 65 inches as the EZ-1000, what are the benefits of paying an extra $5,000 for the XM from Flanders? Well, the EZ-1000, definitely a great monitor. We super love the image quality we've seen from it. It's still HDMI only. And so with the Flanders, you get native quad-link SDI, and it's also fully 444 12-bit RGB and XYZ capable. You can do a 1D and a 3D calibration LUT. 
Hopefully, in the future, we'll get Scopestream out of it, but they haven't said anything about that right now. So, like, if you're a facility, especially if you're a facility doing a lot of, like, theatrical work, being able to outfit your rooms with XM monitors where you can do XYZ native color space um, in the signal without any internal conversion is going to be an appeal. I think you're going to see a lot of easy 1000s in broadcast facilities, and I think you're going to see a lot of XMs where it's worth it to pay the money in the smaller rooms in theatrically driven projects. So, very exciting news from Flanders. Last up, we ran what might be one of the nerdiest articles we've ever run, exploring the difference in color in shot noise on the Vericam LT. So basically, on the Vericam LT, when you get to really low light levels, you get noise in your image, but it's not like the traditional video signal noise we're used to. It's shot noise, which is the noise of the wiggles of light, because light is both a particle and a wave, and as light wiggles around, it doesn't always fall in the same place. And that's the noise you're seeing in the Vericam. So we wondered, since red light is a much longer wavelength than blue light, does it wiggle differently, and will it be noisier? So we fired up our Hive Wasp LED because it is a light that you can really control, and we got out our uh, color meter, and we made it pure red and pure blue, and we shot tests in both on the Vericam. And to see the results, uh, you should check out our article, What's That Noise? Do you want to uh, stick around and answer this Ask No Film School question for us really quick? I would love to. What is it? All right, let's see. So this week, Wesley Sturz asks, I am working on a project that requires scans of old photos donated by our subjects. I haven't worked with scanning before and am wondering what the best way to do this is. In my experience with scanning my own photos for video, photos have always come out less than crisp and always pixelate when blown up. So how does he avoid that, Charles? Wesley, that's totally a common problem and something especially documentary filmmakers struggle with all the time. So the first step before you even worry about the scan is to make sure you've got the best quality source. So, for instance, like when you're doing like a doc about someone's family, people are going to give you those little three inch by five inch prints they got back from the drugstore. And a lot of times they'll like take them out of the little paper sleeve that have negatives in it and they'll give you the prints. But they won't realize that there might be more quality in the negative than there is in the print, depending upon how the print was made, especially if it was like a drugstore print. So double check with your sources to see if there are negatives available or if a larger print was made. So, like, if there's graduation or wedding photos, a lot of times people will get prints of those in a lot of sizes. They'll be like the wallet size and the portrait size and the framing size. If you only can get a print, get the largest print that was made at the time. And if you can get your hands on the negative, get your hands on the negative. After that, with negative, you either want to invest in a high-quality negative scanner or, honestly, if you're not doing a lot of scans, just send it out to a negative scanning service. Um... Those negative attachments for flatbed scanners have not been great. If you have only prints, put them on your flatbed scanner and turn the DPI or dots per inch up really high. This is going to give you really big files. So you might want to then like make a copy of the file at a smaller resolution with Photoshop or Preview to work with when you're editing. Because those big files can be an annoying hassle sometimes and slow your computer down. But here's the thing. Once you've edited it and you know exactly like, okay, I'm looking at this shot and then I'm zooming in at this moment... You're going to want to go back to those really high-res files, and you're going to want to do your crops, zooms, and reframes in a program like After Effects. 
even though nonlinear editors like Premiere and Resolve are great for a lot of things, they're not totally amazing at subpixel rendering right now. Or even if they are great at subpixel, After Effects is still like the gold standard for this kind of thing. So you take that low res, you put it in Premiere, you put it in Avid, and you're like Media Composer or Funnel Cut X, and you're like, okay, I want to start here and zoom in here. But then go into After Effects, replicate that move with your full res DPI files, and you're going to get way better results. The last step in the whole process is understanding that like there might be a limit to the original photograph. So a lot of times, like, once you've zoomed in on a photograph without a lot of resolution, you have to add a little, like, artificial sharpening or contrast to try and get better results out of it. But hopefully at that point, the artifacts you're seeing are just, like, the original grains of film and are not, like, video pixels. Uh, all right, Wesley and all you documentary makers out there, good luck. For uh, my short that I just did, we had to do a similar thing where... Uh, I sourced photos from a uh, this kid who's in my my short. Uh, his family sent me a bunch of photos of him, but since he's only you know like seven years old, um, the photos are like very modern and new looking. And they're and, all digital. And they're all digital. And then I my job was to like put <laughs> match those photos to photos of myself as a kid. So I was using whatever I guess like Photoshop. Yeah, I was using Photoshop, but it, it was. Just I didn't even like resonate with me that the quality of these photos was going to be so uh, different. Um, so we just had to like fuck around with it as much as we could before, uh, or to make it look as if this shot was uh, taken in 1990 rather than 2017, and like put this kid's face on my brother's face, uh, and then another picture of the actress who played her mom, and put that picture on my mom's face. So yeah, just. Photos, man, difficult. It's also really crazy because when the digital photo thing happened, digital photos were originally really crappy, but they were so convenient. So you'll run into these digital photos from like 2008, 2009, where people are like, this is the only shot we took, but they're just terrible. Digital photography is now great. But like, yeah, like the (laughs) the photos from when he was born, if you're getting photos from him when he was one and they were shot on like a flip phone, they're probably awful. Yeah, they're pretty bad. Yeah. But it was so convenient. The flip phone was just there. Yeah, just much like the iPhone today. All right. Thanks, Charles. My pleasure. And now for some indie movies you can catch this week on all different kinds of platforms. If you all listened to our special Sundance episode back in January, you might remember Oakley Anderson Moore talking about a wild post-screening Q&A that erupted into hissing, shouting, and a very passionate debate. Well, that film was Adam Balalao's The New Radical, and it's out on VOD this week. The documentary follows controversial crypto-anarchists Cody Wilson, who is the creator of an unserialized 3D-printed gun called The Liberator, like, you can't make this stuff up, and Amir Taki, who's a possible founder of Bitcoin, which I learned in editing this story, like, the inventors of Bitcoin have yet to be publicly identified. And these two are basically, in the film, articulating ideologies that put them at odds and even into legal battles with the U.S. government. So the story itself is crazy, and the -the behind-the-scenes story is nuts, too. Apparently, Amir Taki disappeared for over a year during production, and it turned out that he'd gone to Syria to fight ISIS. Because, you know, that's what you do. So Oakley did an unbelievable interview with the filmmaker that was one of those ones that really made me want to see the film. So we will link to that in the podcast post. And a few of the year's biggest movies are also coming to VOD this week. Mother can be seen on December 19th. As 2017 wraps up, I think it's safe to declare Darren Aronofsky's as the most controversial film of 2017, barring maybe I love you, daddy, but we'll never see it, so who knows. 
I feel like people couldn't agree on a single aspect of this film. They couldn't figure out if it was good or bad. They couldn't really figure out what it was about. Calling it divisive would be an understatement. The controversy around the film is probably best summed up by its super rare and studio head dreaded F on CinemaScore. As Zach Scharf from IndieWire put it, while Mother may represent a financial disappointment for Paramount, it certainly marks a creative victory. No movie this year is earning as much of a response from critics and audiences as this one. Anyone who sees it comes out with such a vigorous opinion about it that Mother has led to the kind of discussions, hot takes, theorizing, and debates that cinema rarely ever sees in the age of blockbusters and studio tentpoles. A major studio like Paramount deserves credit for taking a chance on something as polarizing as Mother, especially because all major studios refuse to do just that. Paramount's president of marketing and distribution would certainly agree with Scharf's assessment of the film release as she came to its defense in an interview with The Hollywood Reporter saying, This movie is very audacious and brave. You are talking about a director at the top of his game and an actress at the top of her game who, interestingly, sidebar, are not dating anymore after this film. They made a movie that was intended to be bold. Everyone wants original filmmaking, and everyone celebrates Netflix when they tell a story no one else wants to tell. This is our version. We don't want all movies to be safe, and it's okay if some people don't like it. Whatever the movie is really about, the IMDb summary is as follows. A couple's relationship is tested when uninvited guests arrive at their home, disrupting their tranquil existence. It stars Jennifer Lawrence and Javier Bardem. I really agree with your assessment here, and I hope it pays off for Paramount in the long run, like either in terms of its kind of reputation for making bold moves or... Like it could be one of those movies that has a long tail, like like a cult favorite that people will want to watch for a long time. I haven't seen it yet, so I'm, I still want to see it. And also coming out on December 19th is Dunkirk, just in time for award season two, where it's seen as a major contender for best picture of the year. When it came out over the summer, many critics were quick to shout praise upon the film. Many of them said it wasn't only the best movie of the summer or even the best movie of the year, but the best movie Christopher Nolan has ever made. They say it was his most well-crafted, tight, and beautiful film yet. While I know that Liz and I don't necessarily agree with the above statements, I will add in that yes, it is a tense and epic film that is much larger in scale than its runtime would leave one to believe. It is a shorter runtime than many of other Christopher Nolan's films, but he still manages to get across a pretty massive story. Nolan, of course, came from humble indie beginnings with his movies following and Memento, but his transition into blockbuster has been really exceptional. He's managed to avoid the formulaic studio mold with his movies. Even The Dark Knight and his two other Batman movie entries can be deemed as standouts from a long line of superhero movies over the past decade, and especially when you consider that DC was responsible for those movies, and look at where they're at now. Dunkirk stars Tom Hardy, Mark Rylance, Harry Styles, and Killian Murphy, among others. And by the way, if you are going to see this on VOD, I would recommend seeing it on like the biggest screen possible or if like you or one of your friends has a projector because, you know, I didn't necessarily love the kind of pacing of the film, but it is visually stunning. And it was shot in 70 millimeter and it's worth seeing sort of as as boldly as you can. Definitely. And we've got a couple Netflix titles coming out tomorrow is Wormwood. Errol Morris's latest documentary has sparked some controversy, not necessarily because of its subject, but because of its form. If you remember, it's a true crime story about how a CIA operative who was experimenting with LSD ended up falling out of a 13-story window of a New York hotel in the 50s. It has these reenactments that aren't fact-based, so they're not reenactments as much as like scripted segments. 
um, their imaginings of what happened. And Peter Sarsgaard plays the FBI agent Frank Olson. So the whole controversy that surrounds the project is about its length and platform because it's four and a half hours long. And as we said, it's premiering on Netflix. So like after the miniseries O.J. Made in America won an Oscar for Best Doc last year, the committee changed the rules so that episodic documentary series would no longer be eligible for the, for the award. And so this year, the Academy is not recognizing Wormwood in the documentary category. But Netflix is giving Wormwood a day and date theatrical release to try and remedy the situation, meaning you could also see it in theaters this week. But apparently the film is still ineligible for the Oscar because when Morris first played it in Telluride, it screened as the six Netflix episodes with episodic interstitials removed rather than as a movie. So Morris is pissed. The whole thing is a bit of a rigmarole and we'll see what happens. Meanwhile, the film is supposed to be really interesting. Also coming to Netflix or available now, actually, is Fire Chasers. This Netflix documentary series follows backcountry firefighters as they race to put out fires that spread throughout California during the 2016 fire season. Cinematographer Stephen Holleran used a large format glass, the new Primo 70 series from Panavision, to open up the landscape and the world of the fire and get really close to the characters while maintaining all this background space behind them. The result is an incredibly immersive experience for the audience in what these firefighters actually are going through. Emily sat down with the cinematographer to glean some more on his experience in the dangerous shoot. You can read that article, Netflix's Fire Chasers, Stunning Cinematography Amidst 100-Foot Flames, on the site. And I hate that that film is so relevant right now with all the fires going on on the West Coast, but it's probably especially fascinating given current events. Yeah, I mean, fires have been going on in California for a very long time. It's only now, I guess, that it's really becoming a... a coming to public attention because, like, they're so close now to the metropolises, um, not in the back countries anymore. And finally, coming to theaters on Friday the 15th is dun, 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 dun. that movie, Star Wars Episode 8? Let's count. Yeah, I think it's 8. It's definitely 8. Star Wars The Last Jedi. Having taken her first steps into the Jedi world, Rey joins Luke Skywalker on an adventure with Leia, for the last time, Finn, and Poe that unlocks mysteries of the Force and secrets of the past. Director Ryan Johnson is responsible for some great movies so far throughout his career, with Brick, The Brothers Bloom, and Looper under his belt. And Lucasfilm and Disney are so impressed with his effort this time that they have given him complete control of a whole new trilogy and a universe that he will devise himself. He wrote this thing entirely on his own, which I also take as a good sign. It seems like too many voices in the writer's room has been a real problem for this franchise, but Johnson just gets it and will give Disney and Lucasfilm what they want while still staying true to his own vision. So far, the reviews are pretty insane. Of course, I haven't read any of them because of potential spoilers, but all signs are pointing to a riskier, fresher voice than what we got with J.J. Abrams and The Force Awakens. Let's hope the hype doesn't disappoint and we get ourselves another Empire Strikes Back in the middle of this trilogy. Man, I'm so excited. And I'm also trying not to read reviews or anything. I glanced one headline today that was like, basically, it's the best Star Wars movie ever. So that's, you know, we'll see. I, I kind of doubt it, but... I mean, <laughs> it's going to be debatable forever. Debated forever. But I realized that 
Um, I was looking back when you got your tickets yesterday and I realized that I've been, this is going to tell everyone how old I am. I've been to every, I've been to every Star Wars movie on opening weekend since Return of the Jedi. It was the first movie I remember seeing in theaters when I was really, really little. But I didn't get tickets for this weekend because a lot's been going on. And now I feel like everywhere is sold out. But I'm hoping I'll find someone somewhere, even if I have to go to New Jersey. Maybe. Maybe Jersey will have more. (laughs) And now for our upcoming grant and opportunity deadlines. Tomorrow is the deadline for the Webby Awards, which is the leading international award honoring excellence on the Internet in seven major types. Websites, film and video, advertising, media and PR, social, mobile sites and apps, podcast and digital audio, and new for this year, video games. Obviously, not all of those are going to apply to all of you, but... The entry fees in the film and video category are 385 bucks, unless you fall into one of the special categories like art and experimental, in which case it's 150 Last year's Webby's generated over 9 billion media impressions globally, so that's a lot of buzz and might be worth the cost if you think you've got something really, really special. The attention that comes with winning a Webby also wins you new clients, bolsters startups, and makes the world aware of your work. So up to you, but certainly these awards have... Uh, get a lot of attention and been around a long time and are sort of unique in their in their category. So worth a thought, especially if you did some shorts for a client who can pay your entry fee. And the ScreenCraft Family Screenplay Contest has a deadline on December 30th. If you have a family-friendly script, you could win $1,000 and an in-person introduction to a literary manager. This contest avoids the genre bias of some other contests by seeking exclusively screenplays that are life-affirming stories of faith, courage, hope, and love. They want scripts, whether it's a family drama, comedy, animation, or action-adventure film. It doesn't have to be life-affirming story of faith. It can be a dark one, too. And now moving on to festival deadlines. The 51st annual World Fest Houston has a December 15th deadline. This takes place in Houston, Texas from April 20th to the 29th, 2018. World Fest was founded over 51 years ago as Cinema Arts, an international film society in August 1961. So 51 years. They prefer premieres, so they require your project to be a premiere of some kind, whether it's World, USA, or Southwest. They have 10 major competitions and 200-plus subcategories, so go to their site to check out where your film might fit in. It's one of Film Freeway's top 100 reviewed festivals. Also with a deadline tomorrow, Mountain Film. This is the early bird deadline. This one takes place in Telluride, Colorado from May 25th to the 28th, 2018. It's one of America's celebrated documentary film festivals that deals with adventure, activism, human rights, culture, environment, and indomitable spirit. In particular, they're always interested in work that focuses on mountains, mountain culture, and mountaineering, but they're also partial to films about people who are dedicated to changing the world. Incidentally, Oakley Anderson Moore's film Brave New Wild premiered there, and she had a great experience. Um, The theme for 2018 is appropriately migration. It has cash awards. Almost all the films are documentaries, and it has, of course, been voted to Movie Maker Magazine's top 25 coolest film festivals in the world. The Beverly Hills Film Festival has a deadline on December 15th. This is the late deadline. It takes place in L.A. from April 4th to the 8th, 2018. It offers $1,000 in the documentary film category, $1,000 in the short category, and $1,000 in the screenplay category. There must be film festivals in L.A. all the time. I wonder which ones actually like draw industry folks. We'll have to poke into it. 
Meanwhile, we will move on to our weekly words of wisdom. Yay! My weekly words of wisdom come from a guest post by filmmaker Ella Thier called Five Ways to Be Your Own Best Script Doctor. Ella's low-budget sci-fi film Tomorrow Ever After is coming out on streaming services on December 22nd, but you can pre-order it on iTunes now. Uh, She's written over 20 features, and in this post, she spelled out some pretty useful advice for revising your own script before taking it out to a test reading or like an expensive script doctor. What I like about her advice is that it really focuses on the positive. In fact, the very first piece of advice is identify what you love about the script. She says... Quote, make an exhaustive list of what you like about your script. Don't skip this step and don't skimp on it. In my experience, it's the most important aspect of the revision process. You can't enjoy seasoning a soup if you hate the soup. End quote. So she suggests that like this list could be as broad or specific as you like, but it ends up carrying forth the whole rest of the revision process. Just one more quote. She adds, a lot of us make the mistake of thinking that the revision process is all about fixing problems. But great rewriting is often more about fully exploiting what's great in a script. You want to find those elements that sparkle and then expand on those elements. So I thought this was just a really kind of like flipping the script, so to speak. Instead of fixing what's wrong, expand on what's right. And that will probably end up kind of pushing out the parts that are weaker. And my weekly words of wisdom come from an article that V wrote called Watch Why It's Important to Let Your Edit Breathe. I'm deep in the process of editing my own short, so this handy rundown was pretty nice to read up on. She wrote up this video essay that uh, details the quote-unquote single most important thing that you can do to make your editing better. The author of that video, Sven Pape of This Guy Edits, says that one important thing is pauses and breaths. Formerly called decompressions, these are moments of suspension in which your audience is shown a certain shot for a little while longer. Usually these moments occur during highly emotional scenes, like when a character is feeling sad, worried, tense, or apprehensive. But why? Why are these pauses and breaths important? Well, they allow the audience to marinate in the scene, giving themselves enough time to understand the emotions of each character and then empathize. Essentially, these moments give your audience the chance to feel what your characters are feeling. Still, it's really hard knowing when the right time is to let these breaths happen, especially when you're working in a shorter format. These days, short-form content is really about that, making content short to adjust to our and future generations' dwindling attention spans. For shorts, this is also a particularly tough call because the real sweet spot for festivals is that 10 to 15 minute range. The script for my short was 14 pages long, and I literally just finished my first director's cut last night, and it turned out to be 24 minutes. So that adage of the whole a page a minute thing I mean, I knew that it wasn't going to be the case for my short, but don't buy into that. I mean, it depends on how much dialogue you have, and it depends on how much action you have, and it depends how you're going to edit it. So this is especially worrying for me because I really want to find ways to make my scenes breathe and to heighten suspense, but letting the scenes linger on longer than it's absolutely necessary seems like it won't work for my ultimate goal of making it fit into a time slot for shorts at a festival. And for those of you who don't really know, it's one of the benefits of having a 10 to 15 minute short is that when programmers are searching for shorts to put in their festival, uh, they're usually put out in blocks. So ultimately, your short is going to fit in better if it's a shorter short 
because it has a more likely chance of working with other shorts uh, that are the same length rather than like, say you're watching, say, say the programmer can program, you know, five 15 minute shorts or two 25 minute shorts and one 15 minute short. That's not what's going to, that's not what's going to happen. So it's better that your short is in that 10 to 15 minute sweet spot or even shorter. It's definitely a tough line to toe, but for your edit, it's definitely worth experimenting and finding a middle ground. So for my case, I'll be going to my editor with this cut, which is 24 minutes long, and relaying these exact thoughts to him. How do we heighten the suspense of the short? Which scenes do we want to breathe? But how can we make it shorter? Cool. I love hearing the real world work in progress, and I'm excited that you have the director's cut. That's, you know, it's a big step. No one will ever see it, so... (laughs) <laughs> the director's cut. Maybe your Kickstarter backers is like a special secret prize when you're Wicked Famous. I don't think. Well, maybe. Maybe if, if I get See. Wicked Famous. but We can uh, put it on No Film School in 10 years. That's like, even my first director's cut sucked, and now I'm the John Fusco. Oof. Well, there's, there's many John Fuscos. <laughs> I don't know. I think the film industry probably needs more white guys. Anyway, before we go... I want to mention that today is the big day that voting in the U.S. happens on a proposal by FCC Chairman Ajit Pai to overturn net neutrality rules. So keep your eye on the news. As we've discussed several times on the show, this affects anyone who uses the Internet and content creators especially. So if you're American and care about this issue and happen to be listening to this episode early in the morning, it's your very last chance to contact your congressperson and share your opinion on the matter. Ideas on how to do that can be found at www.battleforthenet.com. We are not going to air an interview podcast next Monday as we're doing all of our uh, end-of-year coverage and busy with that. But we'll be with you next Thursday for our big year-end Indie Film Weekly episode. And we'll bring you another interview podcast the following Monday to be determined. So meanwhile, please stay in touch. Check out the podcast and subscribe on iTunes. If you haven't, look for No Film School. Uh, We are on Twitter. I'm at Liz Film. I'm at John. (laughs) No, you're not. I'm at Jim underscore John underscore Jim. Jim underscore John underscore Jim underscore Jam underscore Juice underscore Jews. Happy Hanukkah. What? Anyway... Charles is at Charles Hain, and we are all at No Film School. See you next Thursday. Bye.